Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 35. That's John chapter 1 and verse 35. If you're using a pew Bible, you find that on page 750. I do invite you to, to have a Bible open. We're going to try to work through about uh, 16 or 17 verses this morning. You're going to find, as our practice, we're going to just be going verse by verse and going back to the Bible. And I think you'll find the sermon more engaging and easier to follow if you have the Scripture in your lap as we work through this text. And so we'll be in John chapter 1 and verse 35. It's certainly good to have you here, Brother Jeff, uh, leading us uh, uh, once again in, in worship on the drums. It's uh, exciting to have you back home visiting. And uh, we have an uh, opportunity to hear from Jeff uh, next Sunday. He's going to share with us what God has been doing through his mission work. Uh, and so we look forward to that. John chapter 1 and verse 35. Please hear now the word of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth said, uh, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this word in which we now uh, set our hearts focus on. We thank you that Jesus has come and that Jesus has lived and Jesus has died. We thank you that the tomb is empty today and Jesus has been exalted into heaven and sits there upon the throne. We thank you that he has sent his spirit and poured out, poured it at him out upon us that we might follow and obey and worship and listen to his word. And so we now pray that you would help us to please hear from you, that your spirit would open our hearts to receive the word in which you have recorded for us for thousands of years, that we might know Christ and love him and follow him more faithfully, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my youngest son, uh, Ezekiel Patton, is named after a hero of mine, John Patton, who Charles Spurgeon called the king of the cannibals. And John Patton was a missionary to the uh, Tan Tannese people on the island of Tana, and it was an island of cannibals. In fact, the 
the uh, previous missionary that was there uh, were actually killed and consumed by those who John Patton and his wife went to minister to. I actually, as you know, perhaps had the great honor to actually backpack last year across the island of Tana into uh, the, the secluded villages and preached in 21 villages about Christ. They're no longer cannibals, by the way, so I I'm, uh, appreciate that. But uh, well, there's a day in which John Patton there was on the island for just a short time and uh, his house was actually surrounded by these savages uh, and they were uh, shouting and screaming and he and his wife were in great fear and terror for their lives. Um, they, they seemed intent on killing them as they did the previous missionaries. And so what else could they do there but fall to their knees and pray? And so they did. But John Patton said he found it very difficult because his prayers were continually interrupted by the shrieks and the shouts of the men that were surrounding his hut. As they imagined, at any moment they would barge in and, and take their lives. And, and so they prayed and labored, and as a very long night passed and the sun began to rise, um, they were amazed to see these, these tribesmen retreat back into the jungle. And so John and his wife continued their ministry there on the island of Tana. Uh, eventually the chief priest, uh, excuse me, the, the village chief who was surrounding and leading the men around John's hut came to Christ. And about a year after that event, uh, John asked the chief priest, kind of worked up the courage and said, you remember that night when you were surrounded our house and, and, and you, were, you were intent on killing us? Why, why did you not come and kill us? And at this, the chief became very disturbed with the question. And he looked at the ground and, and thought for a moment and then finally looked at John and, and didn't answer his question but asked a question of his own. Patton re records it in his autobiography when the chief said, who were all those men who were with you? At this, John was surprised because there was no men with him. He was just him and his wife. So there's no one here. And the chief became somewhat agitated and said, there were a hundred men in shining garments with drawn swords encircling your house. Um, it seems to be that, that these village chiefs had the great, these village, villagers had the privilege, if you will, the same privilege that we saw of Elisha's servant. Remember that when he was able to see the army of God surrounding the city and he was given that, those eyes to see that, that God is working and God is powerful and mighty and sends his servants at times to protect his people. In fact, just a few years ago, a Southern California pastor's wife was driving down the Santa Ana freeway and uh, somehow uh, the back door got opened as she was traveling uh, around 70 miles an hour or 80 as they do out there and her four-year-old son uh, tumbled out of the car and she uh, with her heart in her throat uh, slammed on the brakes and jumped out of the car and ran down the interstate and what she found was not what she was expecting for her little son was sitting there in the midst of the glare of the headlights of screeched cars coming to a stop with only a few abrasions and scrapes. But what surprised her even more when she picked up her son, her son said, Mommy, Mommy, I saw Jesus put up his hands and stop the cars. And it may be a, a child's imagination. After all, I was raised in a Christian home. Or it may be the hands of Jesus who stopped the cars. In fact, I find it extraordinary what Jesus says here in verse 51 of our text when he said to Nathaniel, truly, uh, I and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's simply, to me, it's just an incredible statement that Jesus offers his, this new disciple. And it's just one of the, the many truths that we see about Jesus in this incredible text that we get to study this morning, these glances at Jesus. This is, uh, by the way, the conclusion of our 
Uh, I guess this is part seven of our six-week study, if you will, of uh, who is Jesus, the advent of grace and truth, that we discovered who is Jesus from John chapter one. And this morning, as you perhaps already noticed from your your handout, um, we have seven more glances at who Jesus is. And some of you pull out a handout and see seven points in a sermon and and you freak out a little bit, don't you? Um, And some of you get excited, but most of you freak out. Um, But that's okay. We're just going to push through and we'll we'll aim to get out on time. In fact, what we've seen in John's gospel is just these glorious truths about who Christ is. In verse 1, we saw that Jesus is eternal and that he's with God and that he is God. And in verse 3, we saw Jesus created everything. And in verse 4, that he brings life. And in verse 5 and verse 9, he's light to a dark world. And in verse 12, he, he makes us children of God. In verse 14, he became flesh so that we can see God and that he was full of grace and truth. And in verse 16, he gives grace upon grace. And in verse 17, he's greater than Moses and the law. In verse 18, he's the only begotten God who's at God's side, who reveals God to us verse 23, he's called the Lord. In verse 29, he's the Lamb of God who removes the sin of the world. In verse 33, he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. So my question is, you want to see more about Jesus? The answer is yes. Okay. Do you want to see more about Jesus? Come on, people. This is God's Word. We're come to study God. We come to listen to what God has to say to us through His Holy Word. He has recorded His Word for you today. You are here for a reason, to hear from God. And this ought to fire your soul this morning that God has shown you who His Son is. And now you have the great and awesome privilege and the freedom afforded to you in this nation to come and to sit and to hear and to look at who Jesus is. These seven glances at Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Note this in verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now John's already said this. Remember back in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so now the next day, John continues to testify to Jesus and says, There, once again, is the Lamb of God. And in testifying to Jesus, note what happens in verse 37. The two disciples uh, heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So these are John's disciples. These are people who are following this prophet. And they, they hear him say now twice, this man's the Lamb of God. And so they finally decide, well, what am I doing with John? I'm going with the Lamb of God. I'm going to follow Jesus. And you're wondering, maybe John's praising Jesus a little too loudly. I mean, people are leaving his church and going to Jesus' church. And, and that might disturb him. But, it, but you know it doesn't. As we've studied John's life, it, that's the whole point. That John is continually pointing to Jesus he keeps saying, I'm nothing. I, I'm, I'm insignificant. It's not about me. John is just singing the national anthem, right, before the game. It's not the game. You've come for the game and not to hear John. And so you ought to go with Jesus. He says, I can't untie his shoes. And he ranks before me. And I'm just a voice or a messenger. And I baptize with water. But he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The difference between John and Jesus is insurmountable. Some have said the difference between John and Jesus is the, the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. I mean, it's a big difference. The baptism with water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the difference between these two. And so when John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, he's, he's saying, why, why are you guys still here? <laughs> Did you not hear me yesterday? He's the Lamb of God. Go. Go to Him. And so we see two disciples of John's in verse 37. They, they go to the Lamb of God who, who removes sin. 
The question is, why do you follow someone called the Lamb of God? As we saw in verse 29, why do you follow someone who takes away sin? Well, you do so because you have sin, right? And you want it removed from you. That's what it means to be a Christian, doesn't it? It mean, a Christian is, a Christ follower means that you are a savior seeking to save you from all of your sin, from all of your evil, all of your rebellion. This is why we follow Jesus, because he removes our sin. I appreciate what John Piper said in commenting on this passage. Following Jesus is not heroic. We follow him not in the way David's mighty men followed him to serve him and protect him as their revered sovereign. No, we follow him in the way sheep follow the shepherd. Because we need to be protected. We need to have our sins forgiven. We are weak and he is strong. We are foolish and he is wise. We are hungry and he is the bread. And so when we follow Jesus, it is a declaration saying that I'm a sinner and he's a savior. He removes sin. This is why all of you Christians have followed Jesus, right? Because you're sinners and you need to have your sin removed. That's what it means to be a Christian. I I therefore think that ought to humble us a little bit. Don't you think? That the whole point of our religion is not is is we're not righteous, and that we need our sin taken from us. It's humbling, and and therefore, if we follow Christ because He's a sin remover, how is it that we get so caught up in pride? I mean, is that not just nonsensical that we look down our nose at other sinners when the whole point of following Jesus is because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, and, and that we refuse to confess sin to one another because we already already know that we're all sinners because we follow a sin remover. It makes no sense to me. In fact, if you're a Christian, I know one thing about you. You're a sinner. You know you're a sinner. And I'm a sinner. And so let's not pretend we're not. In fact, I think we should look at this text and say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. My sin has been removed through the slaughter of the Lamb of God. And at the same time, God help me to be humble and help me to be forgiving of other sinners because I'm no better than them and that we would run from illogical pride and hypocrisy and self-preservation. In fact, I don't know if you're getting caught up in these New Year's resolutions, but maybe you could add to your diet or your exercise routine the resolution to be humble. Maybe that would be a good one. I'm going to be forgiving in 2014. And I pray that God would do this because God has forgiven us much since Jesus is the Lamb of God. But you also notice, secondly, that Jesus guides us to truth. Look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Here come some guys and Jesus has no followers yet. He has no disciples. It's just Jesus. And all of a sudden a couple guys begin to show interest. And the, the question they get is, What do you want? It's fascinating to me. In fact, these are Jesus' first words in John's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, his first words is a request to be baptized. In Luke's gospel, his first words are quoting scripture to the devil. In Mark's gospel, his first words are repent and believe. In John's gospel, it is, what are you looking for? It almost sounds antagonistic, doesn't it? It almost seems annoyed at these people. He's clearly, by the way, not begging them to follow him. Won't you please, as we put in our common language, accept me into your heart. And Jesus is not, clearly not, not begging them or even seeking out after them. And they begin to follow him. And he says, what are you after? What do you want from me? Are you perhaps looking for power or position? Or are you looking for military might? Or are you looking for happiness and comfort or food or, or healing? 
I wonder if you would benefit from that question. If God were to ask you, what do you want? What are you looking for? I wonder how you would answer him. Why why are you here this morning? What what are you seeking? Why do you follow Jesus? This seems to be what he's asking. If if you're following him, or or if maybe you're considering following him, why? I think some people follow him because they want to escape hell. Or perhaps other people follow him because they think Jesus will double your money or erase your problems or heal your relationships or he's, he's better than antacid or sleeping pills. And people follow him for all different reasons, but they, many people follow Jesus because they think Jesus will give them what they want. In fact, Jesus is a means to their idol, that if I follow Jesus, this is what I get out of this. It seems to me that's perhaps what Jesus is getting at. Well, I, I love their answer. I think it's very interesting. Jesus says, what, what are you seeking? And they said to him, verse 38, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are, where are you staying? So their, their answer is not as profound as maybe we hope for, right? What do you want? And we kind of expect them to say truth or grace or eternal life. Or we want to see the face of God. Jesus says, what are you seeking? And they say, your address. We, we want to know where you're li- living. Yeah, I don't know if it, it seems this way to you, but it kind of seems like they're inviting themselves over for dinner. Right? Where, where, are you, where are you living at? Where are you going? Can we come and, and be with you? Can we follow you? Can we spend time with you? Well, Jesus, in great patience, in verse 39, says, said to them, Come and you will see. Which I think probably means more than come and find out where I'm living right now. I think there's something deeper going on here, don't you think? That Jesus constantly does this. Even in, in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, they're talking about birth, and Nicodemus thinks we're talking about one thing, and Jesus is talking about something entirely different. Or in John 4, he's talking to this woman about water, and they're talking about two different things. And, and I think when Jesus says, come and see, he means something far more different than come, and, and you will see where I'm living. And, and they, they come, and they do follow him. And, and in following him, everything begins to change. For we read on in verse 39, so they came and, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day for is about the 10th hour. That means it's about 4 p.m. is that they got to Jesus' house, wherever he's staying, and they began to spend time with him. And, and perhaps through the night and to the next day they spent with Jesus. We don't know what they were talking about. It'd be nice to know. Um, I, I think one day I, if I ever meet Andrew, I would like to know what this, this first conversation that he had with Jesus was about. We don't know, but we do know the outcome. And it's nothing less than astonishing for we see in verse 40, one of the two who had heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother and said to him, we have found the Messiah. We found the Christ. This is what we found. Now just think about that. You, you, you say, I want to follow this guy and you go to his house for dinner and you come away thinking, um, I think I just had dinner with the Messiah. Right? That's never happened to you, has it? Right? You, you've gone to people's dinner and say, that guy's nice or witty. I like that guy. Or that was, a, that was painful. I hope I don't have to do that again. But you never say, oh, that, he may be the Christ. And so that's some pretty good dinner conversation, I think. I'm not sure what Jesus had to say to them. But Andrew, is life is turned around as he's guide in truth. What are you going from? What are you seeking to? We have found the Messiah. It seems like everything has begun to change in their life as God, Jesus guides them into this truth. It almost seems like they don't even know what they're looking for. They don't know what they're seeking. They don't, there's something about Jesus. They want to be with him, but they're not even quite sure why. And Jesus takes them where they are, doesn't he? And he leads them to something much greater. 
I don't know, maybe that describes your pilgrimage with Jesus. You began to seek after him and you weren't quite sure what you're looking for. Or maybe you're looking for something and you've actually found something so much greater. You found truth. Verse 40 tells us that one of these guys, of the two of John's disciples, was named Andrew. The other guy is unnamed. Many people think it's John, the author of this gospel, and he's just being humble by not mentioning his name. But, but I wonder if John ever thought, you know, decades after this event, how, how, did, how did I become an apostle? How, how did I see Jesus die on the cross or being raised from the dead? Or How is it that I'm actually writing Scripture? Oh, yeah. I had dinner with Jesus. And everything changed. My life changed. This, I think, uh, when I look at this, I, I see what God has done in my own life. As many of you know, I, I, I grew up in a godless home and lived as a, as a godless teenager. And I was invited to uh, a church service. Uh, this guy said to me... There, as I'm sure I shared with you, there's cute girls there. Do you want to go uh, meet girls? In which I responded, uh, yes. I may have even said amen. I didn't even know what it meant. But I was, uh, that's what I was looking for. And so I walked into a church building and found um, something much better than girls. I, I found Jesus. And, and the amazing thing is now, now I stand in, in the pulpit and I preach God's word. And I never forget where I came from. And it never gets old that, that I don't even know. I, I, was, I wasn't even looking for his address. I was looking for, for, for a girl. And, and here I am. And God has given me seven children and a godly wife who's following after God. And see, what God does is he takes us and he takes us where we are. And he guides us into truth. Guides us into so much more. Maybe you're here looking for a girl. I don't know. Um, I would like to introduce you to someone so much better. His name is Jesus. And he will change your eternity. He will change your life. Maybe you could add to your New Year's resolution, get to know Jesus better. Study his word. Maybe this year will be a, a year of seeking after truth, of looking into his word that you might know this one who will guide you into truth. Well, number three, the, the third glance we see of Jesus is that he is the Messiah. You see that here in verse 40, uh, as we already seen, one of the two who heard him, heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now, Messiah is a Hebrew word. It means anointed one. And uh, evidently, John is writing to people who do not read Hebrew or Aramaic. He's writing to Greek-speaking individuals. So this is why John's constantly translating these Hebrew words. And so he says Messiah, which also means Christ. So Christ is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, both meaning anointed one. And we saw last week that the Messiah has been promised that he will be anointed with the Spirit of God, that the Spirit would come upon them. And evidently Andrew is so, is so overwhelmed with what happened that, that he says that Jesus is the Messiah. Not only Andrew really knew what he was saying when he said Jesus was the Messiah. That is, he was expecting a Messiah that was far different than the Messiah that Jesus became. But, but still it's faith. He has this, this kernel of faith in Jesus. And, and what's amazing is that Andrew not only believed, but he actually shared it, didn't he? He, he shared it with, with his brother. He said, you've got to meet this guy. I think he's the Messiah. I think he's the Christ. And this seems to be the pattern to me is that we spend time with Jesus and the outflow of that is this natural desire to share Jesus with others. You notice he's not given the great commission. He's not saying, okay, now you must go and make disciples, Andrew. And he, and he goes out of duty and obligation. No, he just spent time with Jesus. He says, i got to tell somebody about this. I need to find somebody. I think he's the Messiah. He's come. And so he goes and, and finds his, he goes to his family, doesn't he? He finds his brother. Um, I, I think that's probably a good place to start witnessing. Maybe you have someone in your family who needs to know Jesus. That would 
be a good place to start. It seems what Andrew does. The first guy says, I'm going to go tell my brother. Of course, it's difficult to witness to family, isn't it? Um, it's probably the chief trouble of witnessing to family is that they know you, right? They know what you say and what you watch on television and know how you act when you don't get your way or know how you drive a car, right? And they know you. And they still want to know, is there any change in your life? Have you been transformed? Has Jesus changed you? I wonder if a good New Year's resolution for us would be to, to share our faith with someone in our family, but maybe even before we do that, we could spend some time seeking change in our life that Jesus will bring about in us, that he would transform us and change us. But by the way, I'm curious uh, this morning, um, a show of hands, how many people here have been, you would say, you were led to Christ primarily through the witness of a co-worker or a friend or a neighbor? Raise your hand if that's you. You've been led to Christ primarily through the witness of a co-worker, neighbor, or friend. Okay, some of you. Now, now raise your hand if you've been led to Christ primarily through the witness of a family member. Will you raise your hand for that? You see that? It's the family that God is pleased to work through, isn't he? That's who he likes to work through. That's the low-hanging fruit. The people that God has put into our lives. And Andrew seems to get this. Well, the fourth glimpse that we have of Jesus is that Jesus has all authority. I, I, I find much joy in verse 42. Uh, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so Andrew gets his brother and, and he takes him, Peter, to, uh, takes Simon to Jesus, and you see what he says here? Jesus looks at him, right? He kind of sizes him up, doesn't he? And he says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to call you uh, Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter. Both words mean rock. And, and so Jesus says, I, I'm going to call you rock, which I think is, I find funny, to be perfectly honest, because if you know anything about Peter, probably rock is kind of the last word you would use to describe a guy who's waffling back and forth all the time. A guy who's constantly flying off the handle. And you, you say, this guy, I'm going to call this rock. I don't know if it was like an ironic name, like you call a five-foot guy bear or something like that. Or, you know, what's Greek for wet noodle? Or, just, you know, I don't know why Jesus says, well, this, you're going to be rock. I'm going to call you rock. That's going to be hilarious because you're going to be all over the place. And you're going to be anything but stable and rock-like. And so we'll go with, with rock. But I, I'm not sure the point, however, is the meaning of Jesus' name, at least in John's gospel. The, the point is that Jesus has the authority to change Simon's name. You, you notice he, he, there's no explanation as to why he changes his name. It's not, I'm going to call you Peter because, or, you know, let's go with Peter because I, this is what's going to happen. No, Jesus just sees him, looks at him, and says, okay, uh, we're going to call you Rock for now on. Um, that, that seems to be, uh, I, I mean, it's just amazing. I, can, I can't imagine doing that. Can you imagine introducing someone to someone? Like you say, hey, I want you to meet my friend, and he says, hi. So, you, so you're Eddie. We're going to call you Steel. Right? You should try that. Just go meet somebody and give them a nickname as the first thing and see, see what happens. I mean, it almost sounds like he's naming it like a professional wrestler. I mean, it's a crazy name that he comes up with. We're going to call you, you're Simon. I think you'll be called Rock. This is what Jesus does. This is, Jesus has authority to do this, doesn't he? That he, he has the, the, uh, the power to do this. Of course, the name is not meaningless. It will become Peter's Identity, won't it? It will become his destiny. One day he will grow to be rock-like. 
This very unstable man, in fact, would stand up in Pentecost and say, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In order to give that message to the assembled of Jerusalem, you would need to be rock-like. And what Jesus is doing, I think, is he has this authority to determine our identity, to determine our destiny. To, he's going to use that authority to change us into the type of people that he wants us to be. I wonder if you are any different because you've encountered Jesus. I wonder if he's changed you. Many of you perhaps can look back in the past year and say the change has been radical in my life for the last five years and you think I can't believe I'm where I am now or the person I am today because of what God has done in my life. Some of you it's, it's more gradual change that God is doing in your life. But, but whether it's gradual or radical, Jesus is in the, the business of bringing about change in our life. He wants to change you. He wants to give you a new name. I wonder if a, if a good New Year's resolution would, for, would be for you to consider what kind of changes would be good for you this year as you follow Christ. In fact, I, I wonder if he gave you a new name, what it would be. What, what would he name you? In fact, he, he may have already given you a new name. There's a very interesting verse in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So maybe one day you'll find out the name that he has given you as he moves you towards this identity as Jesus has this authority in your life. We also see that Jesus knows your thoughts and actions. Note verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And so we first have, have John telling people to follow Jesus. And then there's Andrew and now there's Jesus, isn't he? Now Jesus is calling for people and he looks at Philip and he says, come and follow me. Some of you maybe have had that experience when um, it hasn't been someone who led you to Christ, but it's just been God. It just Maybe you listened to a sermon on a radio or read a, a track or a, or a Bible or, or just walked into a church. It's largely what God did to me. I didn't even know a Christian before God found me and he just grabbed a hold of me. And it seems this is what he's doing for Philip. And uh, he calls Philip to himself. And evidently Philip is so amazed with Jesus that you see what Philip does in verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, when he says the law of Moses, this is a technical term to describe the entirety of, of what we now call the Old Testament. And that Philip says all the Old Testament points to this man, Jesus. Now, this is extraordinary because Jesus just said to him, come and follow me. And he didn't even know who Jesus was. And it seems that shortly thereafter, he's convinced that all the Bible is pointing to Jesus. In fact, he's so overwhelmed that he goes and finds his friend, Nathaniel. For we see in verse 40, uh, uh, well, that's what he did. Verse 45, he comes and tells Nathaniel. But I, I love Nathaniel's response. You note that, see that in verse 46. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like, Nazareth, come on, you've got to be kidding me. Right? There's nothing good that could come out of Nazareth. And maybe he's prejudiced against Nazareth. Maybe he's a student of Scripture and knows that the Messiah needs to come from Bethlehem. He says, it can't come from Nazareth. The Bible tells us that his birthplace will be Bethlehem. He says, no, there's no chance. And I love Philip's response to Nathaniel's skepticism in verse 46. And Philip said to him, come and see. He doesn't argue with him, does he? He doesn't get out the scripture and say, let's debate this. He says, just, just come and meet him. Just come and, and spend time with him. I, I think very few people have been argued into Christianity. I don't think it's a matter of intellectual faith. I think it's a matter of a submission 
a willingness to submit to God and let Him be the, the ruler of our lives. And, and so Philip just says, come and, come and see. It reminds me of, of a story that I came across in preparation for this message of uh, the 19th century, uh, very powerful agnostic, Aldous Huxley, who was at one time very moved by the gospel. Um, he was at a weekend party when on Sunday most of the guests had prepared to, to go to the wor- worship service that Sunday. But Huxley, of course, who made his career at arguing against Christians and Christianity, was not planning to go. But he approached a, a plain man who was known for his deep faith in Christ and, and made this proposal to him. He says, suppose you don't go to church service today and instead stay home and tell me quite simply what your, what your Christian faith means to you and why you are a Christian. Well, the man was somewhat hesitant as he replied, I I can't do that. You would demolish my arguments in a minute. I'm not clever enough to argue with you. Huxley uh, countered by saying, I I don't want to argue with you. I I just want you to tell me simply what this Christ means to you. And so the man stayed home with the brilliant Huxley and shared what Jesus meant to him, told him of his faith. And when he had finished sharing all that he had, there were tears in the brilliant eyes of this agnostic as he said I would give my right hand if I could only believe that you see what moved him by the gospel is not intellectual arguments it's just a testimony of a faith it's just what Jesus has done in my life what who he is come and see once you once you come I don't want to debate you I just want to show you I wonder if we would do well to invite people just to come and see and invite them into our homes or invite them over to coffee or for dinner. Let's talk. Let's just consider this. I read that one out of four people would come to a Bible study or church service or your homes if they would just be invited. One out of four. Come come and see. This seems what everybody seems to be doing in this chapter, doesn't it? A chain of people telling others about Jesus. John tells Andrew. Andrew tells Peter. Jesus tells Philip. Philip tells Nathaniel. Just, they, and they each have this encounter that's so life-changing that they, that they go and they share. They, they go and proclaim, we have found the Messiah. This is how you found Jesus. Someone told you, didn't they? And someone told them. And someone told them. And maybe we could all trace it back to John the Baptist who first started proclaiming the Lamb of God who removes the sin of the world. That people have been told. And I wonder, are you keeping that going? Are, are you telling people about Jesus? Are, are you sharing that Jesus is the Christ? I think we struggle with this. I think uh, we do this poorly, um, this idea of evangelism. I think maybe we do it poorly because maybe we don't understand evangelism well. And evangelism has kind of been reduced to, okay, you go find someone and you tell them everything that you find important about Jesus and then say, okay, do you want to receive this? Do you want to receive him? Do you want eternal life? Let's pray this prayer. Let's get it done. Yes or no. Let's, let's, let's find the answer right now. And maybe this works with people who are very familiar with Jesus. But, but I wonder if there are people out there that say, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's a big decision. I, I don't know. And, and I, I feel like we don't give them the option, don't know. It's either yes or no. You don't know? Okay, sorry, you're going to hell. See ya. I'm on to the next one. I, I, I don't think that's the way, what we see here. In fact, one pastor presents our evangelism in this metaphor. And it, it's like if you're a single guy and, he, and I show up at your door, and I, I knock on your door, and, and I say, uh, hi, I'm glad to see you, and I know you're single. Um, well, there's a woman in my car, and she would like to marry you. And uh, she's beautiful, and she's fun, and she's exciting. And uh, you guys are going to have a great time. It's going to be a great marriage. So let's do it right now. Let's, let's just, we'll come out here on the front porch. We call the neighbors together, and you could get married right now. Let's do it. Yes or no? 
And, and you may think, well, let's slow down a little bit. Um, I would like to maybe go on a date with her, maybe get to, to know her a little bit. No, she doesn't have time for a date. In fact, she has a gun, and if you say no, she's going to shoot you and send you to hell. So what's it going to be? Yes or no? Are you in or are you out? Right? Well, I, I don't, you know, I look at this story, and it seems that Jesus is willing to wade with people through their doubt. He's willing to live with them through their struggle. It's not, bam, here it is. Are you in or out? Now, sometimes that's all we have. But most of the time, I think, and we, we probably would do well to do what Jesus is doing, is that we, we start by making friends and get involved in their life and really get, make them friends, really love them. I mean, Philip and Simon and Nathaniel, they didn't get it. They had no idea what was going on. They were struggling, as we know. But Jesus lives with them. He goes to dinner with them. He gets to know them. He invests with them. He's willing to, to answer their questions and he'll hear their difficult thoughts, even their flip-flopping. I wonder if a good New Year's resolution for us this year will we find people to befriend, people to love, and people to say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus, what he's done to me, and, and let's talk about him. It, let me share with you what he's done in my life. And maybe you have some questions. Well, here Peter, Philip brings Nathaniel, and, and Nathaniel's, Nathaniel eventually is going to come his, as, after Philip says, come and see. And we see in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him, and he said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Which I think is kind of an interesting statement that, that Jesus is making. I think it's in reference to the statement that Nathaniel made who said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Um, and, and we're kind of wondering what Jesus is going to think about this. I mean, this guy is bashing his hometown. He's, he's dragging down his hometown and, and Jesus is going to get upset with his bluntness? No, we don't see that at all. In fact, Jesus looks at him and says, There is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That is, here is someone who tells it like it is. With Nathaniel, you're gonna, you, you know what you're getting. He doesn't like Nazareth, evidently. And he is willing to tell you that. And that may be good or that may be bad. I don't think Jesus is commenting on Nathaniel's righteousness. But at least he's not cunning. At least he's not devious and two-faced. In fact, I think there's more here in this statement than we realize. Remember Jacob of old? That, that deceiver? The, the, that cunning man who was full of deceit and stole his brother's blessing. And his father Isaac said to Jacob's brother Esau, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. To which Esau replies, isn't he right to be named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. And so Jacob has connected with this idea of deceit. In fact, his name sounds like deceit. But what is Jacob renamed? Well, he's renamed as he begins to follow God, Israel, isn't he? He's called Israel. And now here Jesus says, here, here is an Israelite indeed in whom there is no Jacob left. The deceit is gone. And Jesus is happy about this, isn't he? That, that, that the cunningness is left. And, 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 and Jesus says, there's no guile, there's no deceit. And, and this confuses Nathaniel as Nathaniel becomes aware that Jesus knows his heart. He knows his thoughts before he even meets them. Jesus knows all about him. And Nathaniel's very confused, as we see in verse 48. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And we never met. How, how do you know that I have no deceit? How do you know what I, what's on my heart and what I said and what I'm thinking? Well, Jesus blows him away once again, for we read on in verse 48. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. When, when you were out of sight, I knew what you were, you were, Nathaniel. I saw what you were doing. I know your heart. I know your actions. I know your thoughts. Jesus knows everything about you. 
And you should realize this. King Jesus knows what's going on in your mind this very moment. He is aware of what you're thinking and what you're feeling. He knows what you do. There's never been a situation in which you are, when she is unaware of what's happening and how you're responding to it. The wonderful thing is that he's not only aware, but he loves you. He loves you. And, and therefore, he is stronger than the troubles and the trials that you face, your financial trouble, your health scare, your relationship stress. He, he knows what's going on. He knows your heart. Uh, maybe a good New Year's resolution would be to, to cast our cares upon Jesus. He knows everything about us. He knows what we do and, and what we think. And Jesus knows us inside and out. And Nathaniel's astonished by this, as we see in verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Which is just, it's awesome, isn't it? It didn't take him long. It just, it was 30 minutes ago he was saying, Nazareth, please, come on. You're kidding me. And now he's saying, you're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. This radical transformation takes place in his life as we see, number six, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is indeed the King of Israel. In fact, we already saw this back in verse 34 as John shared with us, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And now Nathaniel adds that he is the King of Israel. And what Nathaniel means by this when he says you're the Son of God and King of Israel, what he means is that you're the Messiah. The Messiah was not only the anointed one, but he was promised to be the Son of God and the King of Israel. And the chief of this, uh, the chief verse in this is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. We're just simply out of time to explore that. But when Nathaniel's calling him the Son of God, he's saying, you're the Messiah who's come to deliver us, is what he's thinking. But once again, as we see throughout this passage, he's saying more than he realizes. Because this term Son of God throughout Jesus' life actually begins to mean more than just his earthly human Messiah. That actually grows into a title of his divinity. That he is God himself in the flesh. And so when Jesus is brought before Pilate there and he's accused of blasphemy, they say of him in John 19, according to our law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. You see, Son of God is a declaration that Jesus Himself is the second person of the Trinity. He is God Himself. This is what Nathaniel is ultimately saying about Him, though he doesn't even know it. This is who Jesus is. And Jesus evidently likes this, for He goes on to share verse 50. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And He said to him, Truly, Truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Um, as we see lastly, Jesus connects heaven to earth. It's interesting what Jesus is bringing to our minds here. It's an Old Testament story, isn't it, of, of Jacob, uh, what we call Jacob's ladder. Remember Jacob, that scoundrel, as we just mentioned, he stole his brother's blessing as he lied to his father and, and uh, deceived him and stole from his big brother. And he receives the blessing that Isaac gives him that was reserved for Esau. And out of fear of his big brother, he flees for his life. Immediately that day, he takes off. In fact, he is so afraid of his big brother, he travels 43 miles by foot across the wilderness. Have you ever walked 43 miles? No, me neither. Um, but I imagine if you do, one, you have to be pretty motivated, and two, you're probably exhausted when you end that hike. In fact, we hear of his exhaustion in Genesis 28, verse 11. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And so just for clarity, you have to be pretty tired if a stone sounds like a good idea for a pillow. 
right? I've never been that tired. You know, I'm, that pillow looks nice. I'm going to rest my head on that pillow. No, he, he, is, he is gassed. He has had a bad day. He, he thought it was a good idea. You know, I'll lie to my father. I'll steal my brother's blessing. But it turned bad real quick where he had to run for his life. He leaves his family, his town, the only life that he has. And he's totally exhausted. And he's utterly unprepared for this trip. And he's alone in the middle of the wilderness. He doesn't know anybody out there and has no provision whatsoever. And he just says, I don't know. I'm just going to lay. I'm going to put my head on this pillow. I'm going to take a nap. And we'll see what tomorrow comes. But before tomorrow comes, God had his great grace and love for him. He gives him this dream. And Genesis 28 verse 12 says, He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set on earth. The top of it reached to the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And be God, behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you. And so there's Jacob alone in the wilderness due to his sin. And God says, you're not alone. In fact, there is traffic from heaven to earth that is there on your behalf to care for you. There is a ladder between God's realm and our realm, and this is a ladder by which God uses to bless His people. And so Jesus brings this back to mind in verse 51. The question is why? I mean, this is totally out of blue. Why in the world does Jesus say, bring us back to this story of of Jacob? We don't know. but, but I, I would like to speculate just for a moment and maybe guess, as others have guessed. It's not my own, my own, I'm not the only one who's made this guess. But you remember that, that Nathaniel was sitting under a fig tree. It, uh, to sit under a fig tree that day was a euphemism for spiritual meditation. And, and so if you would go and sit under the fig tree and, and shield it from the heat, from its shady branches, you would often do that because you wanted to meditate or pray or to think about a passage of Scripture. And so if someone said, hey, where's Eddie? And you would say, well, Eddie's under a fig tree. And you say, oh, okay, Eddie wants to be alone. He's thinking about God right now. And, and there, of course, Nathaniel is called when he is under that fig tree. And we, of course, don't know what he's thinking about. But I wonder if he was pondering this story of Jacob's ladder. I wonder if he's thinking about it. What does this all mean? Angels going up and down and this ladder to, to heaven. And, and, and how, how do we even put this all together? And Jesus says, oh, here's an Israelite indeed in whom there is no Jacob. I tell you, you will see greater things than what you're even thinking about. You will see a ladder from heaven to earth and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, upon me. Jesus says, I'm the ladder. I'm the one who connects heaven and earth. There's a gap that exists between heaven and earth, and that gap has been bridged by Jesus. God, holy and righteous in heaven, and man sinful upon this earth, and God would come down and descend to us and become man in order to close that gap. Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, if you follow me, if you trust me, you will see that I am the decisive final leap between God and man, between heaven and earth itself. In fact, later in John chapter 3, Jesus would say, As Moses is lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. What Jesus is telling us, if you would put your faith in Jesus, if you would bend your knee to Him as King, and God understand He has died for sinners and rose from the dead, you will live forever. Jesus leaks us, enemies, once and now reconciled, by Christ, 
He is that ladder. In fact, when Jacob awoke from his dream, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. That, that word house of God is the Hebrew word Bethel. Jesus is saying to him and to you and I this morning, I am the new Bethel. I'm the house of God. I'm the gate to heaven. Has had a massive impact in Jacob's life when he saw this ladder. In fact, he would go on to say, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. This seems to be John Patton's experience there on Tana amidst cannibals. Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. It seems to be the experience of this pastor's wife on the Santa Ana freeway there in the midst of uh, cars around her. Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. I wonder if we were given a vision like that, we too would understand that God is in this place. He is wherever you go, that Christ has linked us to Him. He is in your school and your workplace and in your home and even in this church this morning. He is here this morning. You may not even understand that or realize it, but God Himself is in our presence today. And I wonder if we knew and believed this, would things change for us? Would our worship change and our prayers change and how we listen to God's word change if we knew that He has linked heaven and earth and that He is that presence that has come to us? How awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. It's here through Christ. And I pray for you, Christian, and for me, Christian, that this year that we would know Christ more than ever before, that we would know that He has brought us to God and our souls would find great delight and hope in that. And perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You too would realize that there is no way to God except on this ladder, the Son of Man, that He might give you faith even now. Father in heaven, we thank You for this morning, this time to seek You. We thank You for showing us Jesus through Your Word. Help us to find great delight in Him. Help this year bring greater joy and obedience and greater passion and submission to our King, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.